In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news analysis of all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, and today I'm joined by my colleague, Tamar Hallerman, the AJC's Washington correspondent from all the way up in the swamp. How are you doing, Tamar? Good. Not as swampy up here today. I've been enjoying it. Oh, good. I'm glad that the uh, the, the weather is getting a little cooler. We're getting ready for uh, football fall season. I'm sure we'll have some stories teed up about uh, how football plays into the, the general election because we always love those stories. But yeah, it's, it's, it's nice to get a little cooler now. You know, I've made it my goal this year as somebody I grew up in, in Virginia. Virginia Tech is my team. I feel like this year, though, I really need to get into the UGA football. I feel like I've been missing out on a key part of Georgia politics, really. Well, this is the year to get into it. And, um, you know, I, I did a story last year about how pretty much every campaign, whether it be for, uh, you know, attorney general all the way up to governor's office, has some sort of presence at UGA tailgates. And with Brian Kemp being an Athens native, a UGA alum, and really taking slogans from Kirby Smart in the in the Bulldog football team, um, you know, there's no, there's no uh, better time to do it than this year. Go dogs. There you go. Um, so, <laughs> so, Greg, I, I wanted to start today's podcast off by, by asking you about kind of the big political event of, of last week that you were able to go to in, in Macon. Um, the Georgia Chamber holds an annual congressional um, luncheon um, where all these people from Atlanta come down, the, the political and the business elite, to come and hear from um, local elected officials. And, and obviously the big headliners this year, Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams, who are, who are both cr- tr- trying to appeal to, to the business wing of the uh, state establishment. And I'm, I'm curious if you can talk to us about, um, about what you saw that day. Yeah, this is this was a, a big moment in the gubernatorial campaign. This is a more mainstream Republican-leaning crowd. These are the G- Governor Nathan Deal crowd. Th- th- these are the types of folks who really um, enthusiastically backed his campaign. They've always kind of, um, you know, leaned toward the right at least in the last decade or so, um, and they're looking for a home because many of them, the the vast majority of them, actually. Uh, supported Casey Cagle in his gubernatorial campaign to the tune of more than $10 million. I mean, he he far outraised both Abrams and Kemp combined. So they're looking, despite the fact that they had issues with with Casey Cagle, they were worried about his stance on religious liberty. He was among um, the Republicans, including Brian Kemp as well, who supported the religious liberty legislation. He also orchestrated the move to to scuttle a tax break aimed at uh, 
benefiting Delta Airlines after the Atlanta-based company waded into a gun control fight. Um, so despite all that, they still effectively, you know, they still enthusiastically backed him and saw him as sort of the heir apparent to Governor Deal. And now they're really, you know, looking for for for, for a new choice now that uh, now that Cagle got trounced in, in the runoff. And there's a ton of space that that Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp have kind of left in the middle, um, kind of where that business community kind of typically lies on the political spectrum here, because both of them have kind of, you know, it, it kind of made sense in the primary to go to their bases. But both of them have shown that, you know, even going into the general, they're going to keep trying to appeal to their liberal and conservative respective bases. So I, I think there, there's kind of a lot of space for um for them to kind of um, make up for. And it'll be really interesting to see who this business community ends up choosing. And I'm wondering if you think it was clear after um, last week's luncheon, if any one candidate seemed to win that community over. Yeah. And that's the big question over the next couple of weeks, 70-ish days left we have until the November election. These are two candidates that ran um, you know, pretty polarizing campaigns because they had to in the primaries to, to fend off a lot of opponents. Um, Stacey Abrams ran as a unapologetic progressive. She she used that phrase over and over again. She talked about issues like gun control, uh, abortion, um, you know, uh, uh, climate change. I mean, just a range of criminal justice reforms, uh, a range of issues that appealed to her party's baseball. Also, trying to focus on the bigger picture: economic development, uh, expanding Medicaid, uh, fully funding the the, the state's. Uh, kindergarten through 12th grade public education formula. Brian Kemp did uh, largely the same thing on his side of the aisle, uh, really you know, trying to outduel Casey Cagle and the other Republican contenders on gun rights expansions, on abortion restrictions, on crackdowns on illegal immigration and crime. And so there is this middle. You've seen Stacey Abrams really aggressively try to go after the middle right after her her primary victory over Stacey Evans back in May um, but Kemp you know he's been slower to, to to move that way because he had a he had a very heated runoff where going f- even further to the right benefited him yeah but but with that community I think there are the, the business community um, I think both candidates kind of have stances on certain issues that that can make them problematic in in certain respects on the one hand you have Kemp who's vowing to sign this religious liberty bill that I think a lot of people in the business community are really nervous about after seeing the impact of, of uh, North Carolina's bathroom law on on a lot of their um, you know on the state's ability to lure big companies and events and and that sort of thing um, and with Abrams you know there's a lot of talk about wages labor unions, that sort of thing, which I'm sure makes people in the business community um, not as enthusiastic, too. Um, At the same time, you know, there's so much space in the middle there, and and especially when it comes to appealing to to the center in Georgia, um, which both sides kind of need, perhaps this is the best way to do it by by taking up the the pro-business economic mantle that um, made Nathan Deal pretty popular at least toward the end of his tenure. Yeah, let's start with with Abrams because she spoke at this event first and we can hear a clip or two from her. I know that we have to build a thriving and diverse economy for all 159 counties, not just the 12 metro counties and the eight hub regions, but for all 159 counties. And I know we have to have an engaged and effective government that understands its responsibilities and gets out of the way when it shouldn't be in the path. I've been proud to work with Governor Nathan Deal, with Speaker David Ralston, with the Georgia General Assembly to move education funding forward. And I'm deeply pleased that this year we had full funding of the QBE formula. But that's the beginning. That is not the end. 
Medicaid expansion is critical in our state. 17 Republican governors have expanded Medicaid, 16 Democratic governors. We have the opportunity to expand Medicaid if we will invest. And for those who would say that Medicaid expansion is a loss, I will tell you it is a leader. We know that in states that have expanded Medicaid, their costs have gone down, their rural hospitals have been saved, and everyone benefits. Notice she tries to thread a needle to this crowd uh, between between her sort of progressive stances and her pro-business stances. She even at one time at one point mentions how she is one of the only politicians to get an A rating from the Georgia Chamber of Commerce and also get a Friend of Labor award for from pro-labor organizations. Uh, she said even she's confused by that, <laughs> but but that it shows you know the sort of uh, the path she tried to to break. She didn't talk about guns or abortion or any of the sort of social issues that are on the table that have be, that, that played pr- such a prominent role in the nomination contest. Instead, she talked about what she talks about pretty much at every event, which is expanding Medicaid. And this is an answer that comes up all the time when she's asked about opioid prevention, when she's asked about mental health problems, gun control issues, and even rural hospitals. She brings it up left and right and she views expanding Medicaid as the top priority, the first thing she'd try to do if she's elected governor, and that it will be an incentive, a boon for these rural areas that are struggling right now uh, to get a sort of jump start. Sure. And, and that's an issue that that for a long time um – you know, the Republican establishment in the state was very against, um, you know, they, a lot of people made clear, you know, the state cannot afford it at this time. It still has to balance its budget. It's just not a financially sound decision. But, but I think over the last few years, you've seen a little bit of movement on that issue, at least when it comes to maybe pursuing a waiver from the federal government that would allow some sort of flexibility or expansion, right? Yeah. And if she's elected, this is going to be a huge fight because, again, she said this is her number one priority. This is the first thing she wants to do in office if she's elected in January. Um, but it still requires a majority of the Georgia legislature, which no matter what, looks like it'll be under Republican control and probably a dominating Republican control. They have um, The GOP has a, already has a big advantage under the gold dome uh, in terms of legislative seats. And so that's where her negotiating skills really come in handy. Because I wouldn't rule that – if she's elected, I wouldn't rule that out off the table just because Republicans will still control the legislature. That's a bargaining chip. Um, and it's – it's you know, they, Republican leaders will know that that's her top priority and they'll look for something in exchange. It might be religious liberty. It might be some other, you know, tax cuts or some other, some other initiative. Who knows? Um, but it, it is a fight and – you know, we've as, as you mentioned, we've seen Republicans sort of be more open to waivers, um, if not going the full way towards Medicaid expansion. Call me a pessimist as somebody who's been up in D.C. for a really long time. At least the climate up here is even on issues where there does seem to be some bipartisan agreement. I think there's such deep-seated mistrust of the other side that, that folks don't want to give anybody a victory. Um, if it's not, you know, an executive from their party. Um, and so I wonder, you know, how bitter it is down in Georgia if, if things have just gotten so entrenched and so nasty that even if there is, you know, some openness on the Republican side to, to finding a way to expanding Medicaid, if people just don't want to give her any sort of victory right off the bat, which at least in D.C. is kind of the status quo right now. Yeah, I mean, one of the arguments she makes when asked about that very issue is that, look, if Mike Pence as governor of Indiana and Jerry Brown as governor of California can both agree to expand Medicaid, then there must be that, that there must be some sort of bipartisan consensus proposal to do so. Um, but again, law- lawmakers did something 
in I, it was in 2014 in the heat of the uh, well in the, in the ice of the of, of the big snowstorm we had that, that paralyzed the city for a few days. Um, lawmakers first introduced the proposal to take away the governor's power to expand Medicaid and give it to the legislature, and that was when. Governor Deal had a, a tough reelection battle against Jason Carter. That law, of course, still stands, and so it'll be it'll be up to the legislature and to the next governor to kind of hash that out. So we talked about Stacey and, and her pitch to the the capital crowd and the the business elite at this uh, at this lunch. What did we hear from Kemp? And I'll be straightforward with you. Like many of you, I have had my ups and downs over the last thirty years. But I ran for office because I was a frustrated small business guy. I was fed up with government overreach and oversight. Rules, regulations, taxes. Some days I spent more time dealing with government paperwork than I did on the job site. It was ridiculous, and I finally got so fed up I just had to do something about it. And in the Georgia State Senate, I did exactly that. I was truthful with voters and I told them what I was going to do and we cut taxes, we slashed regulations, and we stood up for our values back home. We delivered for hardworking Georgians and put our path, our state on a path for prosperity. While, while, while Abrams talked about issues like religious liberty and Medicaid expansion uh, and got got some rousing applause, particularly on the religious liberty part where she talked about opposing religious liberty efforts, uh, Brian Kemp steered clear of those topics, really tried to relate with the crowd by talking about his business background, the ups and downs he faced as a, as a contractor, as a real estate developer, as the owner of a construction firm. Um, you know, to try to drive the point home that he was sort of one of them. He he was someone who also, uh, you know, struggled to start businesses and 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 to 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 get to where he is today. Um, he didn't talk too deeply about any sort of controversial policies or or political divides, but you could just tell um, by his tone of voice and by by a changing sort of stance. He he in doing the primary and the runoff, he often t- called himself a politically incorrect conservative. Well. That's changed the other day when he talked about himself as a tell-it-like-it-is business guy. Not even a tell-it-like-it-is Republican, which he's also said before, but a tell-it-like-it-is business guy. So, you know, to me, that was one effort for him, one way for him to sort of kind of, you know, don't call it a pivot, but move toward the middle and try to appeal to a broader electorate. (laughs) Speaking of pivots, I'd like to pivot a little bit on on the news, um, because you mentioned Brian Kemp really emphasizing his background as a former business guy. Um, And you've seen him and a lot of his allies over the last few weeks really ramp up their criticism of Stacey Abrams over her handling of her own personal finances. Um, But another thing that we saw in the news last week was, was, uh, you know, Brian Kemp uh, had a court hearing last week in Gwinnett County involving an an ongoing lawsuit um, and a business that he he was involved in a few years ago. You were there. Um, Can you talk about it a little bit? Yeah, this has sort of been a thorn in his side for a long time now. This is a lawsuit filed by an investor up in Tacoa, Georgia, named Rick Phillips, uh, who is a very well-connected, very prominent uh, Republican in in North Georgia, who invested in a firm called Hart Agstrong, which is based in Northeast Georgia, and that that Brian Kemp was an initial investor in, and at one point owned about 25% of this company. Well, a few years ago, he went to Rick Phillips and said, hey, you know, this company is growing. Um, it, it's it's already expanded really quickly in Northeast Georgia, and now it wants to look towards other opportunities. Phillips gave him a loan of, I think, $600,000. It was quickly 
it was it was paid on a repaid on a timely basis. And so Brian Kemp came again and asked him for a second loan of five hundred thousand dollars to buy some canola seed for a new project they had up in Kentucky uh, to expand the company's business up there. Well, based on some some bad financial decisions that the company's owners made, and and, and some some bad weather, and you know a confluence of other issues, uh, the company began to really struggle there and had had problems repaying the farmers that, that supplied uh, the, the seed crushing plant in Kentucky. And um, for whatever reason, and that's the, that's the, that's the focus of this litigation, uh, Rick Phillips was not paid the $500,000 back that he loaned on a timely basis. And so he sued Brian Kemp and the company in court and said, essentially, Brian Kemp was the, signed a personal guarantee to pay me back and he didn't do so. And that, that says that in, in his words, he said, that speaks volumes about who Brian Kemp is. Brian Kemp says, hey, you know, he, he, we saw his, his net worth and his personal uh, financial disclosures. He's, he's a millionaire several times over. He can pay it back. But uh, the question is, should he be on the hook for this or should the company? And that's really what the litigation boils down to. And it is very, um, it is very testy. It, in that courtroom, it got pretty tense in there with both sides sort of dueling over who is responsible for, for this $500,000 and whether or not there could be a settlement on the table. Uh, and, and it's Brian Kemp's, in, it's in his best interest to sort of drag this out because he doesn't want uh, a jury trial anytime before November, or he doesn't want a decision against him before November. So they're looking, they're asking for a jury trial, but that wouldn't be for, for months away from now. And, uh, you know, he hopes that this will be settled accordingly. Once more, we also had a, a, an interesting development over the last couple of days with Karen Handel formally. Now, we always know she was running for re-election, but she formally kicked off her re-election campaign, not just with a kickoff party, which she had up in Roswell, but also with her first TV ad. Yeah, exactly. You know, she had the benefit of not having a primary challenger this year. So she really just kind of sat back uh, while there were four Democrats kind of duking it out for the chance to um, go head to head against her in November. She was able to just fundraise keep her head down, let all the Democrats fight amongst themselves. Um, so, so yeah, th- this event in Roswell was really kind of her kickoff for the year. Um, what was so interesting about this television ad, which went up on TV in, in the Atlanta area last week, um, first of all, was how early it was. In general, you really don't see incumbents going up on the air so early. First of all, People know who they are. People definitely know who Karen Handel is after after last year's race. It's expensive to go up on Atlanta TV, especially so far off in front of an election. What else was so striking about this ad is that of all the topics she could have talked about, um, Nancy Pelosi is one of her favorites, the Republican tax bill, something she talks about a lot, opioid legislation. Um, the issue that she focused on in this first ad was human trafficking. Huh. And, and why do you think human trafficking of all those issues was the one that she, she zeroed in on? Well, first of all, it's a, it's a very bipartisan issue. It's something that nobody is going to, to disagree with. And when it comes to building up, um, you know, when it comes to winning people over in this district where, where Democrats still think they have a good chance of, of flipping the seat, winning over a lot of these suburban Republicans who are unhappy with Trump, especially women, I see this as an effort to kind of reach out and say, you know, 
I'm not focused on that. I'm focused on important issues that that matter to everyone that we can all agree with. I'm not just a, a partisan. And, and, and Donald Trump, of course, looms large in all these House contests because Democrats are hoping to um, you know, kind of turn the screws on his administration um, if they retake the House. What what role? I mean, I, he's definitely not in this first commercial. What do you think? How do you think she approaches the whole Donald Trump question over the next few months? Sure. Um, in general, she's always kind of kept him at arm's length, embracing him whenever she needs to, but also carving out some some daylight between herself and, and him whenever she needs to as well. Um, the most prominent example of that since she's come up to D.C. has been on the tariff issue, um, especially as there's been talk about the administration putting a tariff on foreign-made cars. Um, Mercedes-Benz just opened up its big new headquarters in Sandy Springs, right, in her, her district. Um, so she, she's kind of carefully separated herself, making sure not to criticize the president directly, so she's not alienating his core supporters, but also trying to show, hey, I'm independent when I need to be too. Something you're seeing from her Democratic opponent, Lucy McBath, is that she's been relentless in tying every single thing Donald Trump has ever done in this race, or, or sorry, over the last few months, to Karen Handel, even on issues like trade where, where Handel has made clear, hey, I'm not with the president on this particular strategy, or, or at least this particular approach with the, the tariffs. Here, here's the big question. How does that strategy change or does it change, change at all uh, now that we have some of these big developments and we might have some more big developments, but we have uh, ex-Trump attorney Michael Cohen implicating the president in payoffs to a pair of women before the 2016 vote. And we have former Trump campaign chair Paul Manafort convicted of eight felony charges on the same day. Does that sort of factor into the to, to their response to Trump and to the Democratic challengers of, of both Karen Handel and Rob Woodall? Absolutely. I mean, with the Democrats, you're seeing that they are not going to hesitate every time there's a big headline out of D.C. to link that to these Republican incumbents who in general have said they are very supportive of the president. Um, and to these Republican incumbents, Rob Woodall especially has made so clear and handled too. Um, you know, I'm a supporter of the president. He's a great working partner on issues important to my district. But these personal scandals, you know, the scandal du jour, um, you know, I have nothing to do with that. I'm, you know, they've kept it very much on kind of a policy level. So they're going to try and duck as many questions as they can when it comes to the president and his personal conduct and the Russia investigation. But um, it might be really hard because especially every time they're up in D.C., that's all reporters want to ask them about, not about their opioid policy or, or how they want to handle human trafficking. So it's definitely going to be a very delicate dance going into November. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they play this because this is not, you know, just a, a, a you know, a tweet, an offensive tweet or, you know, an off the cuff remark or something that, that Trump made that, that got a bunch of headlines for a day and then might might just disappear. This this is an ongoing corruption uh, investigation that has netted two big fish. Well, these are separate investigations, but two big fish now um, have, have one has been convicted and one's pled guilty or uh, implicated the president. Um so, so th these are issues that they're going to have to continue to handle, right? Exactly. And it's such a delicate dance, right? Because the president's base also constitutes their base and their, their districts. So they don't want to overstep and be too overly critical of the president. At the same time, they want to make clear that, that this has nothing to do with them and that um, all these you know, legal issues, you know, this legal cloud surrounding the president has nothing to do with them or even their support for him. Um, so this is going to be an ongoing theme all the way to November and even after that. You know, there's still is two more years of his administration. So plenty to go on this one. 
Tamara, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Well, that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to AJC.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter, along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. It really means a lot to us when you do. And as always, thank you for listening. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.